Good. Before Bev comes to speak to us, I'd like to read again uh, our parable for today, where we started, but it's good to hear God's word and to read it through again. So it's Matthew chapter 20, Matthew chapter 20, and Jesus' parable of the vineyard workers. So feel free to move into your rooms. Let's read the scripture, and then I'll hand over to Bev. Jesus is trying to explain what his kingdom is like. And there's lots of parables, particularly in Matthew, that says the kingdom of God is like. And and this is one of them. The kingdom of heaven is like the landowner who went out early one morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay the normal daily wage and sent them out to work. At nine o'clock in the morning, he was passing through the marketplace and saw some people standing around doing nothing. So he hired them telling them he'd pay them whatever was right at the end of the day. So they went to work in the vineyard. At noon, and again at three o'clock, he did the same thing. And then even at five o'clock, he was in town and saw some people standing around. He asked them, why haven't you been working today? And they said, because no one's hired us. The landowner told them, then go out and join the others in the vineyard. That evening, he told his foreman to call the workers in and pay them, beginning with the last workers first. When those that were just hired at five o'clock were paid, each received a full day's wage. And so when those hired first came to get their pay, they assumed they'd receive much more. But they too were paid a day's wage. When they received their pay, they protested to the owner. Those people worked only one hour, and yet you paid them just as much as you paid us who worked all day in the scorching heat. And he answered them, friend, I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Take your money and go. I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you. Is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? Should you be jealous because I am kind and generous to others? So, those who are last now will be first then, and those who are first will be last. Lord, we thank you for your words, and we thank you for Bev. We pray that you'll help us to have ears to hear what your Spirit is saying to us this morning through this kingdom parable. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Good morning. How are you all today? Yeah. Weather for ducks outside, hey? Awful. Um, I just, early, I, I'm a bit all over the show. I was, I was very well prepared, I think. Um, and just during the service, I've just had such a stirring of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> um, Pat gave me a word um, early on as, at the beginning of the service about um, something to do with a slight adjustment and um, there's a wholeness and about a pioneering spirit. And um, just after she said it, the drumbeat went out of sequence. I don't know if anyone... Sorry to... Dr- sorry, yeah, uh, yeah. <clears throat> but it was a prophetic act, yeah? <laughs> and it was a prophetic act, actually. Because there's been a word over this church about a gear change about when things, the rhythm, start to change. And I just thought that sequencing was quite something. 
because Pat had just finished praying for me and the drum sequence. And actually what I'm preaching about is about pioneering spirit and about um, change and a word that was laid on my heart last night. But before I start, um, I had a word about a left shoulder and a rotor cuff. A rotor cuff, is that what it was? Yeah, a rotor cuff. So anyone at the end, we'd like to pray. Anyone with a left shoulder problem. And in terms of Turkey, as we were praying for Turkey and praying for you, I just had this word, Jacob's Wells. Jacob's Wells. Jacob's Wells. We can explore it a bit later. I'm not too sure where that's going. But, um, yeah, something's about to break. That well is going to flow somewhere. Um, And all those years of digging and scrabbling around, trying to get the hard stone out of the well. Something's happening there. Okay. I always get into trouble because I take too long. What really struck me, <laughs> um, just sort of the page in my Bible, and it said parables more than stories. And it's just so lovely um, that Jesus lived among a storytelling people. His approach to instruction was still very unusual in the time. And I think almost in our modern age, we've lost that ability to tell stories. Um, his stories were memorable, but they were not transparent. People heard them, but they don't, did not necessarily understand them. They are clearer to us because of Paul's writings, but few of the first hearers of the parables understood them. And at one point, the disciples asked in frustration, why do you speak to the people in parables? And the disciples did not grasp the stories any better than the rest of the crowd did. Jesus' answers to the disciples reveals much about the purpose of his teaching. And I really loved that. Um, and it goes on to say that as we hear the parables of Jesus, they, we often, it means something different to all of us. Yeah? Um, and I was really quite struck by that that somehow we hear the parable and yet it has a different meaning to all of us. So Nigel covered some of it. Um, So we have this context. Um, In chapter 19, just before we start chapter 20, there's this whole dialogue going on. Um, Jesus and the rich young ruler, he says, look, I can't be giving up all this stuff. (laughs) And Jesus says, well, that's the way it is. Um, And off the the wealthy ruler goes. (coughs) Jesus then uses this um, statement, I think, that we we hear a lot um, about the the wealthy entering the kingdom of heaven. um, Camels and, you know, eyes of needles. And then Peter's question to Jesus. We have left everything. (laughs) And if this bloke, the young ruler who's got it all, can't get in... How on earth are we going to make it? And that's the context that put, leads into the story where Jesus starts to explain the truth about the kingdom of heaven. And I'd, I don't think things are ironic anymore in the kingdom of heaven and, and the stuff that God does. But I just want to throw out there, you know, in the UK, we're talking about wages and laborers and working and unfairness, yeah? Yeah? in our world, just throwing it out there, 
Nearly a half a million in the UK are paid below the minimum wage. That's a lot of people. And if you ramp that up globally, it's staggering. We're also talking about contract labor, and this is my world of work. You know that today, globally, more people are employed under contract, piecework, part-time, seasonal, than ever before um, in terms of industrial history, yeah? That more people today do not have permanent employment, so therefore don't have an income. And that's quite worrying. Um, and I don't want to guilt trip you, but a lot of it's got to do with our consumer habits, yeah? So weather changes, a brand needs suddenly to order, you know, a million jerseys or raincoats or something, and the order goes through out to the different countries. They then bring in hundreds of people just to make our raincoats. And those people don't have permanent employment. They just come in piecemeal. And that's quite disturbing. And I'll tell you why it's disturbing is that, <coughs> and I, I really got quite carried away re- researching this one, um, because the Old Testament is incredibly clear about wages and employment. And I was like, oh, ooh, I didn't know that. Okay. And even in the New Testament, there's, there's a lot that's really clear about how we should be paying wages. And I'll go into a bit um, on that in a minute. Ironically as well, um, I design things um, for supply chains and workers. And currently I'm working on a grievance mechanism for workers. Um, on how do you how do you stop a complaint in the workplace? What happens when it escalates to a grievance, and then how does it actually escalate to a major dispute? And how do you how do you address it? So there we go. Okay, I'm not going to show you because it's worth a lot of money, <laughs> and I get I get paid. Yeah, but yeah. Um, so all interesting stuff. So here we go. Nigel read the story. Landowner, six o'clock in the morning, he's out there and he recruits his first group of workers and they agree the day's wage. So there's a verbal contract um, between the landowner and that first group of workers. (coughs) And they're all happy and off they go and they start working. At 9am, at 3pm and again at 5pm, More workers are hired and are recruited, and there's no verbal agreement. There's no, what are you paying? Okay, how much are you paying? What are we going to get? So there's no, only the first set get this agreement. Yeah, verbal, a verbal contract. Um, But the other three groups of people are just recruited. I'd imagine they presume that this is a good guy, he is going to pay them. And off they go to dig in the fields. The last group that are recruited at 5 p.m. actually only work about an hour of the day. Yeah? So come pay time at the end of the day, all get the same pay. Now, I would, I would be very annoyed at that. Anyone else? Yeah? Have you ever sat at A&E and you're desperately ill and the guy next to you who is not ill 
Suddenly his name gets called first. And what's our response? And off we go. Or we're in a bus queue. Now I'm not going to say it, Luke. Luke's been trying to teach me how to queue for years. I don't queue. I don't from a cult, from, come from a culture that queues. Why queue? Where you can just through the door, yeah? But how annoying. Have you had it? Yeah? You've been queuing. You're sensible. You know what to do. And then some bullshy person. Hmm? South African or German. And what do we do? We come. Let's hear it. We complain, okay? Because it's not fair. Yeah? It's just not fair. You have put in the time. You have sat at that wretched A&E for five hours. And then this person who is not sick gets called. (laughs) Yeah? And you can just, we've got it in us. It is not fair. And of course, our first group of workers... What do they do when they see this? That these so-and-sos who've only just put in an hour's graft are getting the same wage as them who've been working now 12 hours. What would we do? You go and speak to your union rep. (laughs) You'd complain. You'd mutter away. But you'd complain. You tell your mates, yeah, it's not fair. So what is Jesus trying to tell us in the story? You know, if heaven's not going to be a fair place, and like Peter, we've given up everything. I've left my home. I've left my family. His poor wife, heaven knows what she was doing. It's not fair. How does this work? And I want to draw three points. I don't often take the landowner's part. I don't often take the boss's side. But this is his argument. It's his land and it's his discretion to pay as he sees fit. Yeah? And I actually get this a lot um, with business owners, but we take the risk. We put in the investment. We should then reward ourselves with pay that's 200 times <laughs> what the receptionist is earning. Why, sh- why should they get the same as me? I'm paying the risk. I'm putting it out there. Yeah? And my shareholders, who do absolutely nothing, yeah? I-, I live in this world, okay? I live in this world. And you explain that actually just one quarter of a pence of a banana that we pay for, the worker who picks it gets that quarter of a pence, yeah, of the banana charge. Yeah, it's my world. But the landowner actually honors the contract with the first group. But to the others, he's actually more than generous. So he's an honorable person. 
He's honored the contract with the first group. But with groups two, three, and four, he is way and above more generous. And if we look at this as God is the land owner, the kingdom of heaven is his, possibly this first group represents the Hebrews or the Jewish people, who the original contract between God and mankind was made. Yeah, we've got Moses, we've got the covenants, yeah, we've got all of that, the journey through the desert. There was this covenant between God and man. There was a contract that was written down, yeah, and there was the sacrificial um, elements in the temple that sealed that covenant. God just saying, I'm here, it's happening, we've got a contract, I'm here. All the prophets throughout the ages, I'm here, we've got a contract, yeah, it's here. So those potentially are the first group of workers in this kingdom of heaven. But what then of two, three, and four? These other shifts of workers potentially are the Gentiles. You and me fall into this group. And Gentiles and people who've come to faith through the ages, when the message started to go wider than just the Jewish people or the Hebrew nation at the time, And this is where we get the benefit here. You know, many believe we're in the end times. So, hey, we're in that last hour, and what are we going to get as a reward? The kingdom of heaven, just as the guys who did 2,000 years ago. We all get that reward. And it's because of Jesus. It's because of Jesus that this new covenant was established that you and me get access to the kingdom of heaven through the cross immediately when we accept salvation. Secondly, the landowner mentions the law. But this could also extend to the very clear law about the treatment of workers. It must, he must have known <laughs> he was hiring people on a regular basis. If he's quoting the law about his discretion as the landowner to use his wealth as he sees fit, um, he must have known, I did a rough search, you get 58 verses about wages in the Bible, of which 28 are in the Old Testament. He must have known the rules. And he must have known the one from Deuteronomy 24 14 and 15, it makes it very clear. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether they be your brethren or an alien working on your land. In 15, you shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and he needs it. Lest he cry out against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. So by not paying something, the landowner in this instance would be guilty of sin. Because he's withholding wages. Yeah? And he must have known this. 
He must have known this. So it's very clear in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that withholding wages, and it even speaks at one point about even if you hold it overnight and pay them the next day, it is a sin. Okay? This has really fired me up. Um, And it's actually seen as stealing from workers and is seen as exploitation and oppression. And I was really quiet as I started to read and read and read at 2 o'clock this morning. I was like, oh, you know what I'd love to do on my little piece of paper here is, God says so. <laughs> but I can't. But here, it's saying, you know what, <laughs> God says so. In verse 15, the landowner asks, is your eye evil because I'm good? I don't know, but you know, in a lot of cultures, that often indicates, and I was looking up and I double-checked, that even in a Hebrew context, the evil eye is an expression referring to jealousy and envy. And I know in some of, well, where I come from, <laughs> you know, people say, oh, don't make an eye at me. You know, when you say, oh, that's a nice shirt, oh, I love, you. Oh, I love your jewelry, <laughs> nice and bling there, you know. Um, oh, nice car. And they'll say, don't make an eye at me. Yeah? Don't make eyes at me. <laughs> and it's literally saying, don't be envious. Yeah? Don't be envious of what I've got. And it's sort of pushed back. And I know we see it across many cultures. Um, I think in Turkey, everywhere, the little eyes. Yeah, a bit freaky. But hey. Um, so in, in this context, he's saying, whoa. Yeah? I'm a good guy. <laughs> I'm a good man. I know the law. I'm paying over and above what actually I should do to those groups two, three, and four. Don't make eyes at me. And he's referring to jealousy and envy. And I want to read something because they put it so much better than I do. A simple definition of envy is to want what belongs to someone else. A more thorough description of envy is a resentful, dissatisfied longing for another's possession, position, fortune, achievements, or success. The Bible says envy is an act of the flesh, the result of human sin, our carnal nature. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, adultery, witchcraft. Hatred, discord, jealousy, selfish ambition, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. And it's interesting that this element, envy, sits into some of those sins, yeah? And we often don't see that because it's a hidden. It says envy and jealousy are closely related and sometimes used interchangeably in modern Bible translations. But they're not quite synonymous. Envy is a reaction to lacking something that somebody else possesses. And jealousy is a reaction to the fear or threat of losing something. Or often someone we possess. Envy is the distress or resentment we feel when others have what we have not. Jealousy is the sense of dread and suspicion we feel 
when what we have might be taken away. This is such, there is such a thing as good jealousy, but the Bible never speaks of envy in a good light. And they reference 2 Corinthians 11. Another word in the Bible closely associated with envy is covetousness. To covet is to have an excessive desire to possess what belongs to another, usually related to tangible items like property. Covetousness is an intense craving or selfish desire that threatens the fundamental rights of other people. But it is often a hidden emotion. It is often something buried deep in our souls. Envy is corrosive. It leads to sin. It fuels competitiveness and deep insecurity. It can underscore performance. And especially in a religious setting, in a faith setting, in a church setting, we can easily move into Well, that person sings better than I do. That person dresses better than I do. That person preaches better than I do. This person has more knowledge in scripture than I do. I'm incredibly envious of Koz's knowledge of Greek. I don't know it. Yeah. Sorry. No. (laughs) Got wrong names. (laughs) But it undermines things. It's corrosive. It starts to unsettle the ground. And when we try, perhaps unconsciously, we try to outdo each other. Just a little bit. Yeah? And we cloak it in, but it's service to the Lord. Excellence of service. And why I'm talking about this is because I have fallen into this trap Oh, so many times. Yeah? You know, because of all my circumstance change, I have found it incredibly difficult not to be involved as much as I'd like to be in the church. Yeah? Um, I had to step down from the leadership team. And me, I suffer from FOMO. Anyone know what that is? Yeah? FOMO? There we go. Fear of missing out. I loathe it. I'm a youngest child. Everybody cut me out of the discussions. They always say, oh, you're too little. You're too young. You shouldn't hear this. I hate it. I've had therapy. I've been delivered and set free. Amen. (laughs) But this thing rises up in me. (laughs) Yeah? It rises up in me. Oh, so now there's new prophets in the church. (laughs) Oh, They've been prophesying things, and we've been prophesying that for the last five years. Hmm? Oh, they know all these new people, and I don't. <gasps> Let me go, my friends, quickly. <laughs> okay, I'm exaggerating. Or somebody new joins the church, and they have this angelic, ethereal voice. And suddenly, they're part of the worship group. And they sing better than everybody else. And the guys that have been slogging away for the last 15 years, it's like, whoa, who's this? <laughs> hmm. I want to be that one. <laughs> FOMO, FOMO. Yeah. And it's real. It's real. 
Now, I grew up in a very competitive environment, a very competitive country. You either, there's some rude things, but basically you adapt or die, okay? You win or die. That's the sort of messaging we got all through school. You know, it wasn't good enough to be second. Heaven alone, you know, if you were number three, oh dear, you know. The, it was the type of scenario where you hid your school report and just prayed your parents were a mission for like five weeks <laughs> and just forgot, <laughs> yeah? So you grew up in this environment and it's taken a work of grace to be able to pull it back. And that sort of gets into this hamster wheel cycle of envy and covetousness. Well, why can't I be as good as that person? As a single parent, you know, I've often had to think, you know, I had a lot of stuff. I had the bling. I had the two cars. I had a home. I had the second income, the whole shebang. I had a gardener. I had a domestic servant. I had a home helper. I had a nanny for my children. Yeah? Suddenly I had nothing. I didn't even know how to iron. Yeah? And when I first came to the UK, I'd sort of think, oh, my word. You know, how does one do this stuff? Yeah? And thank heavens for Ray, who has moved me from home to home. I wouldn't know what to do and where to start. I've got better at it. I still don't iron, and I only buy stuff that I don't have to iron, yeah? <laughs> but I was hugely privileged, and suddenly it was all gone. And often you fall into this trap. Why can't I buy my kids a fancy holiday? Why can't I send them both to this and that summer camp? Why do I have to do this or do that? Why can't I take a break? Why am I the single bread owner? It goes in the cycle, yeah? And it is corrosive. It underpins and undermines. Within a church situation, it has implications on fellowships in terms of gifting that we can pray louder or, or more urgently than the next person. We, we have this debate, what's more, imp what's more important? <laughs> Yeah, to preach or to prophesy or to teach or to do healing or out on the streets. It, it, it's corrosive. It can get in and it starts to undermine the unity. For new believers, um, it puts us older people, our noses out of joint. Well, who's this, this thing coming along <laughs> and knows it all, you know? Um, but it staunches new ideas. It staunches creativity. That God has given that person to come into a fellowship and infuse that in fellowship with new love and passion and ideas. And we can staunch it so easily. It also determines the way we think and treat others. And in very broad terms, it undermines or perhaps justifies that certain people have more value than others. And to me, this is the core of this. We are all equal in the sight of God. When we are born again, when we are washed in the blood of Jesus, we all inherit the kingdom of God. And all of this rolls into, and I'm going to be very personal here, a lot of the growing social, economic, and political narrative we are hearing this demonization of the poor, the homeless, the unemployed, this narrative that's coming through our media that they must have done something to deserve it. 
Do we recognize it? Are we hearing it? Are our hearts saying, whoa, there's something not right here? Another thing that cuts me deeply is this undercurrent of racial or ethnic bias. That somehow we are superior. This them and us syndrome and our view of migrants and refugees. And this unconscious bias in terms of racism, it does my head in. And the kingdom of God is saying we are all equal. We all receive the pay. We all get the key to the kingdom of heaven. And when we get there one day, we won't have these divisions. The word that was laid on my heart is we can no longer remain passive. And actually speaking out, defending or challenging exploitation or abuse or racism now has to have that step change. The beat has to change where we, we as the citizens of heaven, we need to start doing it, living it. We represent the kingdom of heaven here on earth. And we need to start living it. We are practicing for our eternal life. How does this happen? And Jesus gives the example. The woman condemned for adultery. The woman at the well. Nicodemus, Zacchaeus. Jesus didn't question them. He engaged. He talked. And then he said, there is a better way. But he never condemned them. He didn't say, whoa, I can't speak to you. You're not of my race. You're not of my creed. You're not of my sexual orientation. He didn't push them away. He stepped in. He engaged. And then he'd say, there's a better way. Oh, you think of the prodigal son. Did the father interrogate him? When he came home, it says there the father stood with arms wide open. And he said, let's party. (laughs) If my prodigal did that, I'd slap him. (laughs) Say, where have you been? You've had me worried. (laughs) I phoned every hospital, every police station. Where have you been? No. Jesus stands with his arms wide open. And he says, come, let's party. Let's bring out that clothing. Oh, and who's the moaner in that scenario? The older brother, our first team, our first shift, raises its head. Oh, that's not fair. Think of Peter and Judas. Jesus washing their feet, even though they were going to betray him. And he knew that. And yet he still washed their feet. The thief on the cross. Five minutes, that's the 11th hour shift. In fact, that's like 5 to 12 shift. You will be in paradise. Can you imagine those disciples? Mm, We've done three and a half years. 
The love of Christ is void of selfish ambition and desire. He engaged with people. He never judged. But he showed them a better way. Through the cross, he took God's love of humankind to the ultimate end, thereby opening the way for all to enter in. Through salvation and accepting him as our savior into the reality of his kingdom of heaven. Such love, such grace at the foot of the cross. And it matters not when and for how long we have served him. We all receive the key to the kingdom of heaven. How do we do this? We have the gift of salvation and knowing Jesus. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit who helps us to understand the mystery. But he also helps us deal with our carnal nature. So every time I have those thoughts about my ex-husband, I consciously say, Holy Spirit, no. Show me the better way. Show me the better way. And I'd like to just end. Because it's something in the time with my mom dying and those months of just sitting doing nothing and just praying and worshipping and reading scripture and the presence of God in that room. I was drawn to the Beatitudes over and over and over again. That if we could aspire to live the Beatitudes day in and day out, we start then, whether we're on the playing field, in the schoolroom, in the office, in parliament, on the bus, on the train, we start then to show the kingdom of heaven and that better way. And I'm going to read it as a prayer. And it's my prayer for all of us that we grasp the mystery of this parable. And the Holy Spirit starts to empower us to be the better way and the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. God of the prophets, God of Christ, we are reminded today that your blessings do not necessarily follow the logic of the world. The world believes that the rich are blessed. But Jesus, you remind us that it is the poor who are blessed. The poor in spirit. The materially poor as well. We pray for a more just world in which we all have enough and none are left behind. Though we fear death and avoid its inevitable arrival, Jesus tells us that those who mourn are blessed. Help us to experience the truth of this mystery. Bring healing and wholeness to those who are sick. And comfort those of us who have lost loved ones. While people covet power, Jesus, you bless the meek. Instruct us, O God, through your Holy Spirit in the ways of humility. Help us to stand in solidarity with the oppressed and the marginalized. Show us your presence in the faces of those the world forgets.
Oh, Lord Jesus, give us a hunger and thirst for righteousness. Fill our hearts with love, overflowing with mercy. Make our hearts pure and give us a vision of your glory. Oh, Father, in a society divided by race, gender, class, ideology, and so many other labels we have created, remind us, Jesus, that we are created in your image, each of us a beautiful reflection of you, each of us your beloved child. Help us then to end our conflicts and wars. Help us to be peacemakers and agents of reconciliation. Gracious God, you have so richly blessed us with life, with love and joy, with hope in the midst of despair. Help us to be the salt of the earth. Help us to be the light of the world, sharing with others that which we have received. Boldly proclaiming the good news of your love and grace. Finding seeds of your kingdom within us. And letting your way grow in our lives and throughout the world. Jesus, we pray and ask this in your name. Amen.